The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ads Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Thursday, the 29th of September. In this COVID update, Dr. Alex Pagdilione will explain that the COVID antivirals are an important part of our response to the pandemic. And so it is essential that we, in primary care, make the maximum use of them for all suitable patients. Many GPs are overly cautious about using the nemetrelvir and ritanavir combination because of concern about significant drug interactions and in patients with renal or hepatic impairment. This has led a lot of GPs to take the risk-averse option, molnupiravir, which has fewer contraindications, but for which the data suggests is probably less effective. However, Dr. Patiglione will explain why the interactions uh, issue is actually quite manageable in the GP setting. He will explain clearly how to navigate the interaction issues so that GPs can be more confident about using the nemotrelvir and ritanavir combination. It will also help GPs to decide which option is best for the patients, when to use it, and how to minimize the risks and maximize the clinical benefits. Look, I'm going to talk about the who, what, where, and when of COVID treatment. So I have a couple of disclosures which are listed here. The most important one is I have sat on an advisory board for Pfizer, re Paxlovid, but uh, actually most of my contribution to that and time was spent talking about uh, how to try to avoid uh, drug interaction side effects uh, for people taking the drug. Uh, I'd like to thank some people right at the start. So Joe Sassadus is a well-known virologist from Melbourne. Some of you may have attended his talks. He's helped me uh, with some of the slides. And also two friends of mine from university days who are general practitioners, Jeff, who works in Geelong, and Krisha, who works in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, who, um, who have a lot of experience uh, treating patients in the outpatient basis with COVID and made sure that I kept it at the right level uh, for the talk. So thanks to them. And Jeff is uh, heavily involved in some of the public health pathways used at the Geelong Hospital um, which have been very helpful to the, uh, to the general practitioners in that region. So why am I giving this talk? I actually may mostly work as an infectious diseases person in a hospital that has a 65-bed ICU. I mainly work in the ICU. If I'm going to treat COVID, I mainly give intravenous remdesivir and dexamethasone, etc., etc. So I rarely give outpatient scripts, actually. Um, the reason I think I've been asked to give this talk is because there are a lot of parallels, um, I think, between COVID and some of the uh, history of HIV, which many of you will be aware of. Um, so, you know, we've got a number of drugs, a couple of oral drugs available to us. We've got Monu 
Lopiravir, which is a nucleoside analogue drug, like our early drugs for HIV. Uh, we'll talk about the mechanism of action a little bit in this talk. Um, and I think it's fair to say that overall, regarding the oral treatments that we have available, that is the less effective of the two oral therapies currently available, but it is much easier to uh, prescribe. And as a result, the majority of scripts on an outpatient basis for COVID therapies are actually for this drug. Uh, we have the alternative drug, which is nimetrelvir, which is uh, commonly known as Paxlovid. Um, uh, it's a boosted drug, like some of our protease inhibitors, because this is also, also a protease inhibitor uh, drug, like some of our HIV drugs. Um, it's actually, I'm going to show you data, more effective as a treatment, but it's far less prescribed because it's trickier to use. There are significant drug-to-drug -drug interactions, and there's also some precautions and contraindications to its use, and we'll talk about that in some detail. I'll touch on remdesivir briefly, only briefly, um, because obviously this is an intravenous therapy, but I should mention that it's also a highly effective drug, probably similar to Paxlovid in terms of the effectiveness. I'll show you that data. Um, and there are a few outpatients where I think this is still the best therapy, and we can do outpatient intravenous remdesivir. Certainly, most of the hospitals in Melbourne, the large academic teaching hospitals, are, are offering this service, and we'll talk about that briefly. And the company is actually working on an oral uh, preparation of this. That's currently in phase one, two um, studies at the moment, so you will see that in the future, probably. Um, and the other thing that I really want to get across, uh, if we're going to be safe prescribers of Paxlovid, then we really need to be conscious of the resources available to us to prevent interactions, side effects and adverse outcomes. And so the, the other parallel with HIV is, you know, for many years in the HIV sphere, we've used the University of Liverpool in the UK's website, fantastic website set up by the pharmacists there, um, to look up drug interactions. And if you just put the words HIV drug interactions, you get their website coming up first. And now if you put the words COVID drug interactions into any browser, you get their website coming up first. Interestingly, they also have a cancer drug interactions website that's also very useful, um, and hepatitis drug website. And actually, this website is also available as an app, which, you get, which I strongly suggest that people download, uh, and I find very useful. There were some problems with the app uh, and with the website earlier on in terms of some drugs being missing, but I think a lot of those gaps have been filled actually over time. So if we're going to talk about treatments, we need to talk about who needs treatment. So I don't really want you to look at the data points in this little table, but this is a little table that I've stolen from the Department of Health website, the Victorian Department of Health website, which just really looks at people. This is women with no risk factors, and what's their risk of uh, being hospitalised uh, by COVID. And down the left-hand side, you can see the ages, so increasing age more likely. Um, but if you have one, two, or subsequently three doses of vaccine, then you're significantly less likely to be admitted. And, you know, I think we got some of the messaging wrong. It was really, it wasn't wrong, but it, as we've learned, you know, this is a three-dose primary course vaccination schedule. It was never really a two-dose schedule, I don't think, particularly in the current era. Um, and you can see if you have no comorbidities, which is what this table is showing you, um, uh, a lot of green. If you throw in a couple of comorbidities, you start to see significantly high rates of hospitalisation. And if you have three or more at-risk conditions, you start to get significant rates of hospitalisation, even in the younger age groups and even with um, vaccination there. So it shows the importance of age and it shows the importance of comorbidities. Um, now, that's all data for women. This is the male data, um, and the only thing to say about this side of the graph is that at every time point, the rates are higher. 
And that's been seen in a number of studies. Uh, the exact reason for that is not known. In fact, there was a study that I just saw last week, just published, uh, looking at testosterone levels, and it's actually not related to testosterone. So, so within men, there's no influence of testosterone levels on mortality. So the exact mechanism for why, why it's, uh, it's worse in men is not clear, but that is a phenomenon that's been well seen over a long period of time. Um, and uh, so that's the who of who should be treated, um, people at high risk for hospitalisation, and of course we could put up the tables for death, but in the interest of time I've done that, I haven't done that here. So this is basically just the criteria, and this is well known, I think, to this audience, so I won't labour the point, but basically you need to have had a positive uh, uh, test, either a RAD or a PCR, within the last five days, so within five days of onset of symptoms, and anyone over the age of 70 would qualify for treatment, irrespective of other comorbidities. If you're 50 or more and have two or more comorbidities, then you qualify. Um, and obviously, outcomes are worse in our indigenous population, so they have a lower age threshold. So for them, it's 30 years old or more. And obviously, any adult with immunosuppression, uh, significant immunosuppression, we would consider treating or we would treat. Um, I'm not going to discuss paediatrics because I'm not a paediatric uh, doctor at all. Um, so what are high-risk conditions? And actually, um, Again, John has kind of touched on this with the influenza story, but it's largely the same uh, kind of conditions. And this sort of uh, information is available on any of the clinical pathways that you guys might be using. So again, I won't go through it uh, separately, and it's very similar to the risk factors for bad outcomes from influenza there uh, that we've already heard about in the last talk. So I'm going to spend the bulk of this talk talking about antivirals. I'll touch on anti-inflammatories and antibodies as well, just briefly. But let's talk about antivirals. If we talk about antivirals, we need to understand the disease that we're dealing with. And so COVID's quite an interesting viral disease. Um, obviously, in the early stage of infection, viral replication is the thing that's driving uh, uh, illness in the patient. Um, and this is the stage, as it is with influenza, that, uh, that we need to get our antivirals in to have some impact on the ultimate outcome of the patient. And we have the therapies that have evidence for them listed there that I'll talk about in an outpatient basis. So budesonide, we'll talk about briefly, molnupiravir and uh, Paxlovid as well. I put remdesivir in tiny, tiny, tiny little uh, letters because there are just a few outpatients where remdesivir will be the best treatment, actually. With time, that viral replicative stage disappears to be replaced in patients by an inflammatory stage. And this is really illustrating a very sick patient who's admitted to ICU and goes to full-blown um, uh, SERS and shock uh, type state, might end up on ECMO, where the inflammation is actually overwhelming. But of course, viral replication by this stage is hardly um, the thing that's driving the process. It's the inflammatory response that is, that is uh, leading to bad outcomes. And you can see some therapies listed there, but certainly there's very little evidence once the patient is sick enough for antivirals making any difference to the patient. And once the patient's tubed, we basically don't initiate any antivirals at that stage. Now, normally at this point in the talk, someone would put up a complicated style uh, slide of the life cycle of the virus. So I'm going to spare you that, and I'm just going to put up the key points in viral replication. So how does a virus replicate? What is a virus? A virus is just a piece of genetic information wrapped up in a coat. So in this case, we've got a little bit of RNA wrapped up in a protein coat that attaches and binds to the cell, and that process of binding to the cell occurs through the ACE receptor. Um, that's why there was some early talk that ACE receptor antagonists may actually have some influence on the course of, uh, of COVID, but actually that didn't turn out to be the case. And so binding is prevented by having antibodies that stop 
binding. So vaccines occur, or we can give artificial antibodies. In the earlier days, we had uh, Ronaprev and Citrovimab, etc. Uh, but the only current one that actually has activity is Evusheld. As the virus has evolved, um, they've lost their activity. Uh, and Evusheld will disappear as well. Um, but currently, that's the one that has activity for patients. And so there are high-risk patients, and we'll touch on that very briefly. There's, then the virus has to enter the cell. I've only listed that there because there are some drugs at, that stop that, that process that may come to fruition. But the two key processes that occur within the cell for the virus to replicate, it has to reproduce its RNA to make new RNA for new viruses, and it has to reproduce its protein coat. So the protein coat is quite interesting because it transcribes a long strip of protein, if you like, which has to be assembled into a protein coat. It has to be cut up into little bricks of protein, if you like, that assemble a wall around the virus. So that requires a protease to chop it up. And so this is a viral enzyme. And, uh, and so we have drugs that work at this stage. And uh, the nimetrelvir is one of the examples of a protease inhibitor for COVID. Uh, and then the other thing that needs to happen is the RNA needs to be reproduced. For that, you need the nucleosides that form up RNA, which are taken in and, uh, and uh, and are integrated, so monopiravir is an example of that, as is remdesivir. Um, so that's enough about the life cycle. Let's talk about the individual drugs. I've just got one slide on remdesivir. Um, so obviously it's intravenous, it's highly effective. This is a study, and in fact, I'm going to throw you, show you three studies. So I've tried to present the studies in as similar a way as possible, to, so that there can be reasonably fair comparisons. It's impossible to be a completely uh, uh, identical because they're separate studies done in different contexts. They're also done fairly early on, largely with Delta um, rather than with Omicron's strange, and I'll come back to that at the end. But overall, I think it's fair to say that this, if given within uh, five days of onset of illness, caused about an 87% reduction in hospitalisation and death as a combined endpoint. Um, so obviously being intravenous, uh, this is difficult to give on an outpatient basis, but we do offer this. So certainly in Melbourne, uh, a number of the hospitals are offering outpatient intravenous therapy for very high-risk patients where we feel, for example, that the Paxlovid has too many contraindications or drug interactions that are going to preclude us using that drug, or that molnupiravir as, you know, the probably the less effective agent is not going to be ideal for this very high-risk patient. So we offer that. Uh, access through our hospital at Monash, for example, is has to be through one of the, the Monash doctors, but most of these patients will be your transplant patients, your HIV patients with severe immunosuppression, etc., who will already have a link to the hospital in some way. So for our general practitioners, all they need to do is to contact the treating physician of that doctor, and they will just ring us as infectious diseases specialists, and we can organise outpatient therapy uh, with remdesivir for these patients. Um, and the other thing to mention is that there is an oral preparation coming in the future, possibly. These trials are underway. Let's move to the two main agents. Molnupiravir is uh, a drug that is a nucleoside analogue. It's oral, um, it's rapidly absorbed, and it's integrated, as I say, into the viral genome. So when we're trying to make new copies of RNA, this is incorporated instead of the normal nucleoside, and it causes errors. And if you get enough errors cumulatively occurring, then that new virus just becomes non-viable. So this is a lovely term, viral error catastrophe. Um, and it's got a, actually a wide range of activity against um, viruses, uh, but in particular we're talking about it because of its role in COVID here. So 
This study was the kind of uh, main study leading to the licensing of this drug internationally, published in the New England Journal. This is data for people who were treated within five days of onset, so that was the primary outcome in this study. And this is just rates of hospitalisation. Now, it's interesting, all three studies that I'm talking about were stopped early by the Data Safety Monitoring Board because of clear evidence of efficacy. So all three drugs clearly are efficacious. So this study was stopped early, and then actually at that point, it had showed about a 50% reduction in hospitalisation. All the people that were on the study but not yet analysed stayed on the study, and the study was completed. So when they came to the final published analysis, actually the reduction in hospitalisation was actually only about 30%, which probably uh, was a bit disappointing to the company that makes this drug. Um, if we actually look at deaths, though, actually it's quite impressive. So there were nine deaths. This is out of about 800 patients, 700 to 800 patients, don't quote me on the exact number, uh, in each group, uh, who were pretty well matched, you'll just take, have to take my word for that. Uh, and there were nine deaths in the placebo group and uh, only one death. So these are in high-risk adults. So uh, adults who had comorbidities that placed them at high risk, as we've already said, for bad outcomes from this. So a very substantial reduction in deaths, a slightly disappointing reduction in hospitalizations. It's an easy drug to use. So it's taken as a BD dosing for tablets for five days. I'm sure you're well aware of that. And it's accounting for the majority of the, private, of the scripts that are done as outpatients because it is easy to do. There's no interactions uh, with other drugs, no interaction with food. It doesn't need any adjustment. Um, so it's very easy to use. Um, and the side effect profile, actually, of all of the drugs is actually very good. So the main side effects here are gastrointestinal side effects. Uh, but no, uh, no uh, increase. In fact, in all of these studies, actually, it's interesting that the serious adverse events were always lower in the treatment group compared to the placebo group uh, in each of these groups. Uh, uh, however, overall, I think it's fair to say that this drug is less effective. And, for example, the Australian guidelines and the US guidelines reflect that in that there is a preference to use one of the other drugs this drug is a fallback if there are contraindications to getting one of the other drugs. There are some issues with this drug. Because of the mechanism of action, it does integrate itself uh, into RNA, and there is actually evidence of fetal harm in animal studies, so this drug absolutely cannot be used in pregnant women. Um, and also, again, because of that mechanism of action, we, it may affect fast-growing tissues. And so, for example, bone and cartilage, uh, cartilage growth in kids is a problem. And so this is not a suitable drug for young children. Um, pregnancy, uh, it's contraindicated, again, because of these concerns about teratogenicity. Um, uh, so if you're going to prescribe this drug to a woman of childbearing age, you need to ensure that she's not pregnant. So doing a pregnancy test. Um, and also breastfeeding is not advised whilst on the drug for, or for at least four days afterwards. For men, actually, the duration of uh, prevention of pregnancy is actually even longer. So if a man takes this, they should not be getting their partner pregnant for at least three months afterwards. Um, interestingly, there was a study a couple of weeks ago just looking at are we developing resistance to this, and actually resistance seemed to be negligible at this stage, um, though you, know, you can never say never with, uh, with viruses. Let's move on to the other main drug that uh, will be used as an out or that is being used as an outpatient uh, uh, therapy. So uh, nimotrelvir uh, is a boosted drug, so it's got this second drug to boost the levels in the in the blood of this drug. Um, it's a protease inhibitor, 
uh, we've already spoken about the mechanism of action. The booster drug does not have any intrinsic activity on its own. Uh, it's really there to boost levels. And you don't really need to understand this graph, except to know that uh, this is on a logarithmic scale, that if you don't boost the drug, it disappears from the system very, very quickly. If you give the booster, you actually get a sustained uh, improvement in levels over a considerable period of time, so it can't be used without the booster. Uh, but unfortunately, having that booster means it's got this potential for drug-to-drug -drug interactions. Now, this is the main licensing study, the EPIC-HR study. It's called High-Risk Patient Study. Um, their primary endpoint was actually slightly different. It was uh, Their primary endpoint was looking at hospitalisation in patients who got it within three days, but I've taken out the five-day treatment data, so that was a secondary endpoint, but to make the comparison fair to the first study, I've presented the same sort of data from the two studies. Actually, the differences are fairly negligible, uh, but I just want to make sure it was kind of a fair comparison. Um, they're not exactly in the same populations, though, it must be said. So this is hospitalisation. Um, uh, you can see that the rate uh, dropped from 6.3% down to 0.8%, so that's an 88% reduction compared to a 30% reduction uh, with molnupiravir. Um, so very impressive, and, uh, and there were no deaths at all. This was a slightly bigger study with about 1,000 patients in each arm. Uh, and no deaths at all in the active treatment arm here. And again, this study had to be stopped early because of unequivocal evidence of um, benefit. And again, serious adverse events, like with the previous study, were actually lower in the active treatment arm. So very impressive results for all of these drugs from these studies. Slightly more complicated to use. So you have the active drug, so you've got two doses of the active drug at each dosing time, together with one dose of the booster drug, the ritonavir there. And again, you take that BD for five days, same as the last drug, uh, uh, last one. Um, there's no significant interactions with food. Actually, very well tolerated from a GI, you know, GI side effects are kind of the main thing. A, a specific side effect that should be mentioned with this drug is that many patients complain of a metallic taste in their mouth. It's worthwhile mentioning that to the patients. Uh, probably stop a few phone calls coming to you, ask, wondering what's going on. Um, but overall, actually, as I say, very well tolerated drugs. Uh, it does require um, some precautions in people with hepatic or renal um, Dysfunction. So in patients with renal uh, dysfunction, it either needs to be dose-reduced, um, uh, uh, and by that I mean you give one less dose of the active drug, so you have one dose of the active drug together with one dose of the booster in people with moderate renal insufficiency, but if they've got poor, uh, very poor renal function, uh, EGFR less than 30, then it can't be used at all. Um, uh, hepatic, you don't need to dose adjust, but if they've got severe hepatic failure, um, then it's uh, not recommended at all. But the big thing with, uh, with this drug is the side effect, uh, the, sorry, the drug interactions profile. Um, so there's a whole list of uh, interactions, Now I don't have time to go through them because of the uh, time frames we're giving this talk in. Um, I think it's important, uh, how do we approach this? How did we approach it in the HIV era? We informed the patient about the possibility of drug-to-drug -drug interactions, and that's to allow us to make sure that we get a complete drug list from this patient, including over-the-counter and herbal drugs, because some of the herbal drugs like St John's Wort and stuff can be problematic with this. Um, so, you know, 
with my HIV patients for many years, I've always, the first thing I always do with each patient is to get a comprehensive, up-to-date list of what they're taking. And then we have to use some resource to look up drug interactions. No one can remember them. Um, so, as I said, there's this University of Liverpool in the UK's website run by the pharmacists. It's a fantastic resource. They have an app. If you just put the words COVID drug interactions into a browser, that's the first thing that comes up. And it has a simple traffic light system. You put the drugs the patients on, you put the drug you want to use, and it tells you red yellow or green as to whether they can't be used, can be used, or can be used with caution. There are other interaction websites, and of course you'll all have management systems that you're using that will have often uh, interaction checkers built into them um, as well. Um, so worth using uh, the University of Liverpool site, and also the pharmacists who are prescribing this drug have a responsibility to ensure that we're prescribing in a safe manner as well. Um, if it actually is contraindicated, but you've got a patient who's at very high risk of adverse outcomes for other reasons, um, then I do suggest you consider IV remdesivir. Don't look at this, I just want to put this up to remind myself to tell you that this is on the University of Liverpool site, they have a number of resources on the front, and this is a quick handy check, so I think this is quite useful to actually, you know, laminate and put on your desk, which has a list of drugs that absolutely you can't use in the red there, drugs that are absolutely okay in the green, so an easy reference, and everything else is kind of in the yellow. So this is kind of an easy reference uh, that you might want to go to first um, to make life easier. Um, who can it be used for? Um, so we're not recommending it in pregnancy, however, there haven't been any signals of any problems in pregnancy. We're certainly not using it in Australia, to my knowledge, but they have started using this in pregnant women in the United States. So I think we may need more information. I'm not recommending it, but we can watch that space. Uh, if you've got a pregnant woman, you need to speak to someone who's an expert in that particular area. Uh, with contraception, um, uh, we recommend um, that, uh, that they are using effective contraception while they're on the drug and for at least seven days afterwards, and that's both men and women. And um, breastfeeding, we recommend that breastfeeding not be done on the drug or for one week afterwards as well. There's a few caveats around all of these studies. So they were done in earlier stages of the pandemic, largely with Delta, um, so not in the Omicron phase. Um, they don't include some of the immunosuppressed patients, heavily immunosuppressed patients, and we don't really know about invaccinated patients, or we didn't. Um, there are a number of studies underway, but actually just in the last two weeks there's been a paper published from the Israelis who have been kind of ahead of the curve with uh, COVID on many things, looking at the use of Paxlovid actually in Israel, the real-life use of Paxlovid in that population, who showed quite convincingly that in the over 65 group, irrespective of vaccination status, that this drug actually has a significant reduction, about the order of magnitude that reported from the clinical study, um, but this is real life data, um, and also significant reduction in deaths as well. They were unable to show a benefit in the under 65 age group. The numbers are a bit low, and I think we need to get more data. This is a preliminary report in the New England Journal just in the last two weeks, um, but certainly in the over 65s, it seems to hold up in real life. It does exactly what the study predicted. So the conclusions of most of my talk is that we have multiple treatments available now. We need to use them early, that the uh, most effective agents are remdesivir, unfortunately that's only IV, and nimetrelvir, which is unfortunately has a few interactions, which is proving a bit of a barrier to its use. 
Uh, molnupiravir is less efficacious but easier to use, which is partly why it's being used more at the moment. Uh, and just touch on another issue, which is rebound. So this is seen particularly with Paxlovid use. Uh, there are lots of reports. In fact, even Tony Fauci, the head of the NIH, when he got his COVID and took uh, Paxlovid, uh, and interestingly, the Bidens also took that drug when they got COVID, um, uh, and both Tony Fauci and apparently Jill Biden reported having some viral rebound at the end of the course of the treatment. And in fact, Tony Fauci says he took a second course of, uh, of, of the drug, actually. Uh, quite interesting. Uh, I have a summary slide on the special populations um, as well, but it largely summarises, because I know you get access to the slides, uh, what I've already spoken about, so just for reference. And Again, this is all data about uh, who's at high risk for hospitalisation, what are the red flags. Uh, this is in most of your clinical pathways. So I'll leave it there. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.